Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you again. We've survived another week in this crazy world. Are you feeling better? Uh, I'm still, I've still got a bit of chest cough. Um, just hanging on. I'm taking medication for it. I don't think I'm um, contagious. contagious or anything. But Are you sleeping at night? You know, this is an interesting story. I've noticed that it gets a little bit harder to travel around the world and come back. It takes me a little longer to bounce back. But this time I went eight days sleeping no more than two hours a night, sometimes less. I would just lay there staring at the ceiling, just begging to be able to go to sleep. And last night was my first night since we got home, actually the ninth night. And I slept six hours. So, wow. That's a great victory. Yeah, it's and been... And you won't fall asleep during the study night. <laughs> it's been a bit of a battle, but uh, always worth it. You know, it's just part of life uh, in the crazy world that we're in. Well, we're going to resume tonight in Hebrews chapter 11. And I have handout sheets for you. So, pass those around. Pass it down that way. Yeah, I'm not going to hope I have enough. You don't need to do that. You're trying to pick up after me. Watch your head. <laughs> Thank you. She's been waiting on everybody since we got I know. It's, it's, it's in her nature. She can't stop. So tonight... You have extra? Tonight, we enter into what is probably the best-known chapter of the book of Hebrews... Many people call the faith chapter, or sometimes people refer to it as the heroes of the faith. But we really need to see its connection to the rest of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> so just <clears throat> a very quick review of the book. I'll hit a few highlights from what we just came through in chapter 10. Um, then we're going to launch into chapter 11. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers probably around 67 AD, about three years before the destruction of Jerusalem. If you had told any Jew living in Jerusalem at that time that the city was about to be destroyed, that the temple would be torn down, that not one stone would be left on another, they would have laughed at you. Probably in 1919, if I had told you what was going to happen in 20. 20 and 21 and 22, you would have laughed. You would say, no way, it's impossible. There is no way that all of the nations of the world are going to be deceived and fall into line and walk in lockstep in regard to their people. It's never happened before in history. The closest we can ever come to it in history is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10. You would have laughed. You'd say, no way, it's not, not going to happen, not possible. So the author is writing to Christians, Christian Jews, that's why it's called the book of Hebrews, and 
these people are being persecuted. The persecution is increasing, and by the way, the persecution against God's people is one of the reasons Jerusalem was judged. First, they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, put him on a cross, said, we will not have this man to rule over us, and then they began persecuting his followers. God gave them 40 years from the crucifixion until the destruction of Jerusalem to repent. The Christians went out, they called on the people, they said judgment is coming, the people laughed, ha ha, whoever heard of such a thing, and then ultimately the judgment fell. You might remember in Luke, Jesus said to his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then flee out of the midst of it, because these will be the days of judgment. The critics of their day laughed and mocked and scorned because they said, how stupid could he be if the city is surrounded by armies, you can't flee. Well, what they didn't realize is that when Titus the Roman came down with the 10th, the 5th, and the 15th Roman legions, which, by the way, were not Romans. They were actually the predecessors of today's Muslims. They were drawn from Syria, uh, they were drawn from Egypt. Uh, they were drawn from surrounding countries. So when the Bible says those who destroyed the city, it's not talking about Rome. It's talking about those legions that broke through the wall. But at any rate, <clears throat> the author is warning these Christians who are under heavy persecution. And because of the persecution of identifying themselves with the local church, they felt that if we just slide back into the temple worship and go along to get along, sound familiar? We won't be persecuted. And the author is saying, you're making decisions that are going to have disastrous results. And I won't go through all of the warning passages. You'll remember that there are five warning passages in the book. We ended with the fourth warning passage toward the end of chapter 10. And he warns them with increasing severity that the decisions that you are making are going to bring you to a place where you will share the judgment that's about to fall. Now, I think we're in a very similar situation in the United States of America today because anyone with a brain and anyone who can look and think realizes that our nation is a nation under judgment. And as in the days of Habakkuk, when Habakkuk cried out and said, Lord, why do you allow the corruption to go on in Jerusalem? God said, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going, to, <coughs> I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, and I'm going to bring the Chaldeans in, and they are going to devastate the city. And Habakkuk says, what kind of answer is that? How in the world can you use the evil Chaldeans to judge your less evil people? Well, we always want to put things on a scale, but God doesn't. Evil's evil. So God will often use an evil nation to judge another evil nation. Uh, we are seeing things happen in the world right now with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and the implications of what's going on and the outcome of it. Um, we can't really anticipate. We don't know. Uh, but I can say that it seems to me that our leaders are doing everything they can to provoke World War III. And if World War III starts, it's going to be like nothing that we have ever seen before. At any rate, the author is telling these people, if you will simply maintain your identification as Christians and be faithful to the local church and to your brothers and sisters in Christ, 
God is able to protect you. God told Habakkuk, if you live by faith, you'll be delivered. That has been uh, the promise to many, many of the prophets and through those prophets to us throughout Scripture. If you live by faith, doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. Doesn't mean it's not going to be painful. Doesn't mean you're not going to face difficult circumstances. It means that you will come through under the hand of the providence of God and the grace of God, and He will sustain you through it. So it's a real book of warning. And in chapter 10, you'll remember we started in the first four verses by him warning them, the law cannot save you. The law cannot make you spiritual. Animal sacrifices are incapable of providing forgiveness and eternal life. There's only one thing that can provide that, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in verses 5 through about 18, he goes through the marvelous work of Christ and shows that he died once for all, that people who are saved are saved once for all, but though we are saved, we are in the process of being sanctified. I'm sure you've all heard this statement, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, show me a place that's not full of hypocrites. You know, we're all hypocrites. I hope you know what the word hypocrite means. You may be here being a hypocrite tonight. The word hypocrite came from the ancient Greek theater. And in the ancient Greek theater, the people up in the stands, they didn't have big screens on each side so that they could see the faces of the actors. So the, the actors would actually hold up great big masks in front of themselves. And they actually used to show this at the beginning of movies. They'd have one mask with a smile and one mask with a frown. You've probably seen those images. So when the actor was happy so that all the people up in the stands could get a sense of the emotion that was going on, they would put the happy face up in front of themselves. And when they were playing a part that was supposed to be gut-wrenching and heartbreaking and they wanted everyone to know that they were sad, they would hold up the big frown. Now, the actor behind the face, when it's smiling, could be weeping. You know, actors are kind of like musicians. They tend to be uh, very sentimental, very emotional. And the actor with the smile may know that in the next uh, part of the play, Juliet is going to commit suicide or whatever. And so the face is smiling, but they're, they're weeping because they're, they're anticipating what's about to come. The actor with a frown might be giggling behind the frown. And so it was called upokritas. Hupo means under. Kritos is to judge, to judge under. In other words, the idea was what was going on in front is not what's going on behind. So in reality, if someone says, how are you doing? And you're having a, I almost slipped and used the word that we might use. I try to be kind. You're having a really lousy week. And they say, how are you doing? And you go, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. We get in the habit of doing that. But we're playing the hypocrite, right? So the point is that when we look for a group of people, when we look for a local church, when we look for a pastor, of all things, we're not going to look for a perfect person or we're never going to be satisfied. When we look at the people that we're about to read about in Hebrews chapter 11, you are not going to find perfect people. As a matter of fact, it appears to me that the author went out of his way to select people from the history of Israel <coughs> who had a lot of problems in their life. 
Many of them failed, and some failed horrendously. And yet he calls them heroes of the faith. He uses them as an example to us because he wants us to understand you are being perfected, but you're not yet perfect. And you are not going to be perfect until you stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his challenge to them is keep growing in grace and truth. And you'll remember starting in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10 through verse 24, he tells them that there are three things that we can all do that will help stabilize our lives and make our lives fruitful and productive. I might just back up and read those three things because they're stated in the form of an exhortation. In verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. This is Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And essentially what he's saying is, don't feel that you are unable to approach the throne of grace. Don't feel that you are not able to come to God just as you are. As we read back in chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. When? When we have need of mercy. What is mercy? Mercy withholds from us the judgment that we deserve. To find grace, what is grace? Grace <laughs> provides for us what we need in time of need. How should we come to God? Even at our worst, we should come boldly providing that we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because that makes a once-for-all change in our relationship to God, and He knows that we're going to stumble. Nothing you're ever going to do is ever going to surprise God. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, God wasn't sitting up there and said, what in the world's going on? His crown falls off and he's, you know, wringing his hands. <clears throat> no, He knew from before the world began. Nothing is going to shock him. Nothing is going to take him by surprise because everything that we have ever done, everything that we will ever do, he laid <coughs> on Christ on the cross. He had to know all the sins of all the people throughout all of history to lay those sins on the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. So let us draw near. In other words, build up your prayer life. Pray. Prayer, I think, is one of the most frustrating sometimes and one of the most mysterious aspects of the Christian life because like Habakkuk and many others, we pray and we feel like God doesn't hear. People have said to me, I prayed, God didn't answer, so I just gave up. Well, what they don't realize is God did answer. Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. Sometimes his answer is wait a while. But he will always answer. Scripture assures us that he hears our prayers. Not only does he hear our prayers, he values them. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, he pictures our prayers as the incense rising up into the presence of God. Something that he treasures and values. So build up your prayer life. Secondly, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our security and our stability in faith in standing in a broken world, in facing the evil that is going on around us, in being able to rise up time after time after time when we get knocked down, it's not based on us. It's not based on our strength. What is it based on? It's based on the fact that he who has promised is faithful. Faith has no value apart from the faithfulness of God. 
and his faithfulness never falters. We stumble and stagger and falter in our faith. We question, we cry out. We have all kinds of problems. And yet God through it all remains faithful to what he has said. As long as we can realize I may not be seeing the end results, I may not be experiencing what the scripture says, but I understand one thing. God is faithful. I'll give you an example, just personal example. After eight days of sleeping between one and two hours a night, and just I felt like an absolute zombie. And I'm certainly still not caught up at this point. I would lay there and I would pray. And you know what I played? prayed? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I would pray that and I would quote it and I'd say, Lord, I'm claiming this, I'm claiming this. You know what? Nothing happened. No peace, no comfort, no joy of just being able to close my eyes and sleep. I really felt like it was some kind of supernatural attack. But you know what? Last night I slept. And last night it was restful and refreshing. And it was like I lay down and closed my eyes and that was marvelous peace. Our problem is we are like little children. When we see something we want, we want it right now. I don't know how many of you have had kids and they see something on TV. Mom, I want that. Let's go to the store and buy it. No, no, maybe later. No, not later, right now. We need to leave right now, get in the car. We need to go to Walmart or wherever. We need to get what I want. We're no different with God. And God deals with us as a good parent the way we should deal with our children. No, no means no. No doesn't mean, oh, well, if you're going to throw a tantrum, okay, little Johnny, we'll go. You know, God doesn't do the one, two, three count when he tells us to do something. It's, yes, this is it. It's not going to change. All of your tears are not going to change what he said. So it's important for us to hold fast the confession of our faith. What is it? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that he died for me on the cross. I believe that he spent three days in the grave. I believe that he rose from the dead, and I believe that he is right now seated at the right hand of God, and he prays for me. He defends me against the attacks of Satan. He brings to the Father my needs and everything else. He's my advocate when I fail, when I sin. All of these things he is doing for me, I believe that. And I may not see things going in my life the way I'd like to see them, but I trust in him, and he knows what he's doing. And he will guide me as a shepherd guides his sheep to the desired end. Hold fast. That's the idea. And then verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, the interesting thing in these three verses, the first, our relation to God in prayer. The second, our relation within ourself to our conviction. The third, our relationship to those around us are built on what? Faith, hope, and love. This is another thing that convinces me that this book was written by the Apostle Paul. Because as we move now out of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, we're moving into the last three chapters, and guess what the last three chapters develop? Hebrews chapter 11 develops faith, Hebrews chapter 12 develops hope, and Hebrews chapter 13 develops love. This is a very typical technique 
of the Apostle Paul. They'll mention something just in passing, and then later he picks that theme up, and he expands and develops on that theme. So in the last verse of, well, let me say the last two verses of chapter 10, the author says, now the just shall live by faith. We know that comes from Habakkuk 2.4. We know that that is quoted in three New Testament books, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. I believe it was the foundation of the Apostle Paul's theology, and he's about to develop that. So the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When a believer in Jesus Christ turns away from the word of God, the local church, the gathering together with other believers, and goes back into the world, God is not pleased with them. And if God is not pleased with them, what do we know is going to happen? There's going to be discipline in their life. Things are going to go astray. Things are not going to work out. Things are, they're, they're going to be fighting against an irresistible source. God never lost a battle that he ever entered into. And if we choose to fight against him, you know, what does Peter tell us in 1 Peter 5, 5? God gives grace to the humble. We better want to be humble. But he wages war against the proud. If we want to be proud, if we want to be arrogant, we have just challenged God to a battle. You may remember that it happened once in history. It happened with a guy named Jacob. And Jacob met a guy at a riverside and thought, I don't know who this guy is, but I'm going to whip him. And they began a wrestling contest. And Jacob could not prevail. And finally, the angel, it was actually the Lord Jesus Christ, what we call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, touched his thigh and his hip went out of joint and he limped the rest of his life. There are a lot of Christians who limp in life because they challenge God to a battle. This is what I want, and this is what I'm going to do. And God says, okay, it's not my will, so we are now at odds. For us, it's a massive battle or a massive wrestling match. For God, it's like thumb wrestling. You know, I mean, it's no challenge to his power at all. But he concludes there in... Verse 39 saying, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. And I just want to point this out to you. The word used here, when you, when you read the word perdition in English, what do you think? Hell. hell. Yeah. Perdition is hell. Mm -hmm. And that's a lousy translation. The word is apolia. And apolia means ruin or destruction. And it's self-destruction. How many times we... Uh, live a life that is self-destructive. <clears throat> so we are not of those who draw back to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. In other words, we have trusted in Christ. We're going to keep on believing. We're going to walk by faith. That brings us to chapter 11, because that quote that we saw, the just shall live, here's the phrase, by faith, he's going to repeat all the way through Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is an expansion on the statement the just shall live by faith. In other words, he wants us to have biblical examples of what it means to live by faith. And he wants us to understand that living by faith doesn't mean that we live a life of perfection. It doesn't mean that we somehow become sinless. It doesn't mean that we uh, are uh, super Christian in any sense. It means that we're going to battle. 
And there's a battle that's going to go on in our soul. And there's a, there's a battle that's going to go on between us and the world. <coughs> and it is a fight. <clears throat> so we're going to look at the first three verses of Hebrews 11. <coughs> and we're going to define what he means by faith. If the just live by faith, what is faith? So verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 2, For by it the elders, meaning the Old Testament saints, obtained a good testimony. And then verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> by the word of God, so that the things that are seen were not made of the things that are visible. So what we have, and you have it here in your notes, in these three verses we have four defining qualities of faith. The first is substance. And the word hypostasis is used five times. Oh, thank you. That may help. Joy. <laughs> Maybe something stronger would I don't know. I have to be careful. I'm a little rough around the edges. The word hypostasis is used five times in the New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 4, 11, 17, and Hebrews 3, 14, it's translated confidence. So that would be a good translation. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for. We are confident that what God has promised, that the kingdom of God that is coming, that the fact that we are going to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ, we are confident that that is going to take place. Uh, he, when he talked earlier in verse 23 of chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, he's talking about confidence. So confidence conveys a good idea. However, in Hebrews 1.3, you might remember that it says that Jesus is the express image of God. That phrase, express image, comes from this word, hypostasis. And hypostasis refers to the nature of a thing and the essence of a thing. <clears throat> or the substance of a thing, and I think that's why it's tra uh, translated here, substance. The point being that in Jesus we see the visible nature and character of the invisible God. You remember Jesus in John 14, 9 said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. How do we know what God is like? Think how difficult it would have been for all of the ages of believers from the time of creation to the time of Christ to try to completely capture what God is like. But the way that we can actually develop a full and complete understanding of his character, his nature, his person is read the Gospels. Read the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read of the man who said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. Everybody thinks God's sitting up there with a thunderbolt just waiting for you to get out of line and he's going to nuke you. No. Look at Jesus with the woman at the well. Look at Jesus with the woman taken in adultery. What is God like? Look at Jesus with the little children. His visible life portrayed for us in the Gospels is descriptive of the nature of the Heavenly Father. So that's a helpful way for us to look at it. In the same way, faith working in the lives of believers is an evidence to the world of the spiritual realities and of the kingdom that we are hoping for. 
You know, the, the best testimony is not what we say. I'm not saying what we say is not important. And it's important that what we say is accurate. There's a guy named uh, uh, Hickson, J.B. Hickson, and he wrote a book called Getting the Gospel Wrong. <clears throat> I highly recommend it because there are a lot of people today who are getting the gospel wrong. We don't want to fail in communicating the simplest message that the world has ever been given accurately and correctly, and it amazes me how easily some people mess it up. Simple faith in Christ alone. What he did for us, he died, was buried, and rose again. The trust of a little child, things like that. Instead of come to Jesus, well, usually first they put give up all your sins and come to Jesus. And my question is, if I can give up my sins, why do I need him? I come to him because I can't give up my sins. You know, repent and clean up your life and then come to Jesus. No, it's come to him just as you are. Come to him broken, come to him humble, come to him defiled. He will take you and wipe away the darkness and bring the light. He will cleanse the uh, vile and the filthy and bring purity. He will take away the burden and the sorrow. He'll replace it with joy. That's, that's the story that we see throughout the Gospels. We do the same thing to the world. How many people do you know? I'm sure that maybe not all of you, but some of you will know people who came to a saving knowledge of Christ because they saw the grace of God at work in the life of another believer. And probably all of us, whether it was before or after we came to Christ, have had people that we can look back to and say, that person portrayed Christ in such a way that it affected my life. You know, I had an experience. Did I tell about the lady in the airport last week? I hate to constantly repeat myself. I don't remember. By the way, what's your name? <laughs> my memory is not the greatest. But I'm going to tell the story anyway. If I told it twice, forgive me. We're sitting in an airport, and there's this poor lady that's wheeled in in a wheelchair. And I can tell the minute they brought her in, I can tell that she is just in tremendous emotional stress. And uh, I watched her as she fiddled. She's trying to hold her, her bags and little belongings and everything all together. And uh, she, she drops a bag, and it falls on the floor, and things tumble out of it. And I just walked over, and I knelt down by her, and I said, can I help you? She said, oh, I'd appreciate that so much. So I gathered things up and put them in a bag, and I said, can I just take all these things and set them in this seat here? And she said, oh, that would be good. So I take all the stuff that she's trying to hold on to, and I set it down, and she said, thank you so much. You know, and I thought, okay. But immediately I began praying for her, because I know here's a hurting lady. As I sat down, she said to me, it's so hopeless when you're hopeless. Now, because we're sitting in an airport and you know the chaos that's going on and because my hearing is not the greatest, I didn't hear what she said. But I already had a spiritual insight into what was going on in this lady's life and I'm praying for her. And I'm praying, Lord, let me give this lady the gospel. And she's sitting there and I can tell she's heavy and pretty soon they called our flight and I got up and I just put my hand on her shoulder and I bent down by her. I had a, one of the gospel coins and I said, you know, God loves you. And I said, he proved it by sending Jesus to die for you. And I said, I just want you to take this coin and I want you to read this coin and it will give you hope. 
and I left it with her. God has us in this world for things like that. We are privileged to live in the time we're living in. I mean, I don't like it. The America that I love is disappearing. Uh, the good old days are gone for good. They're not coming back. But I understand one thing. God chose you and I, for whatever reason, to be put in this time, not only to face the hostility and the opposition and the difficulties that we have to face, but to be there for people who need someone to give them an answer, to show them grace. Now, it's very easy for us to judge. By nature, I'm a judgmental person. Very easy to judge. We're not here to judge. We're here to forgive. We're here to show grace. We're here to extend mercy. And if we just go through our days like that, and, you know, people say, well, I never have an opportunity to witness. Well, I think it's a wrong thing to go out into the world and say, I'm looking for an opportunity. Oh, here's somebody. I'll corner them and start trying to shove it down their throat. No, that's the wrong way. Let God orchestrate the opportunities and he will bring people across your path that you'll have a very easy opportunity to somehow share with them the love of Christ. So the first then is substance and substance is really the essence of what our faith is all about. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's everything that we look for in the future, including the return of Jesus Christ, which by the way, I'm hoping is very near. The evidence of things not seen. Evidence, essentially, this is an explanation of the above. But what he's saying is that true evidence of the invisible kingdom of God is found in the lives of faithful believers. If you want to see that there is a different world, bring someone off the street, a homeless person, out there where it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and bring them in here tonight and they see a different world now they may reject it because some people just hate it they hate god they hate truth they hate grace they hate all that is good they love and thrive on the evil we can't change that but we can still show it to them we can still demonstrate it even in the face of their hostility by responding in grace and responding in prayer for those people so evidence, faith gives substance to us, but it gives evidence to the world. Then third, testimony. By it the elders, meaning the Old Testament saints that we're about to read about, received a good testimony. Good testimony, the word testimony is from martyreo. You know that this is the word we get martyrdom from. Some of them were in fact martyred. Uh, history tells us, tradition tells us, that Isaiah was put inside a wooden log and sawn in two. It'd be kind of a hard way to go. Some died horrible deaths. Many in our time, all over the world today. There are actually more people being killed for their faith today than ever before in history. It's happening all over the world. We have been there. We, we know those who are gone because... They boldly stood up and spoke about what we're talking about tonight in our comfort and safety and without fear of any kind of uh, opposition or interference. They do it daily at their peril. 
Nan and I went to a church in the Andes Mountains in Peru, 10,000 some feet up, walked in the church, and there was kind of a hallway that led into the church, and at the top on each side was a skull, two of their former pastors who had been martyred for their faith. And the skulls were kept there as a reminder to the people, this is what your faith may cost. We've seen it in Vietnam, we've seen it in Africa, we've seen it in China, we've seen it all over the world. There is a malignant hostility against the truth of this message. So these elders in the Old Testament received a good witness. And the idea is <coughs> that God testified or commended them, saying that they were pleasing in his sight. Remember what he said earlier, those that turn back, those that turn their backs and run, there's a reason why in the armor of God we have a breastplate but no backplate. Because we're always supposed to face the enemy. When we turn and run, we expose our back and we end up wounded or destroyed. So that the elders received testimony from God that their life was pleasing. And then <clears throat> understanding, verse 3. By faith we understand. You know, a simple childlike believer has a better understanding of the origin of creation than the most accomplished, educated, anthropologist, archaeologist, whatever realm that you want to get into. They have all these complex theories about how everything came to pass, and they can't accept the simple story. Genesis, I think I may have told you last week. If I didn't, I'll repeat myself. There are four books that we need to be very familiar with. These four books will ground you in your faith. Number one, Genesis. Genesis tells us how it all began and how it all went wrong. That's the essence of the message. It began with God creating everything and it was good and then Adam and Eve rebelled and from then on you see the story of sin, sorrow, pain, suffering, and death. Revelation. Revelation shows us how it's all going to end. Oftentimes when things are bad, we say to each other, hey, we know the end of the story. We might be in a crappy part of the story right now, but we know the end of the story. We know that from the book of Revelation. Don't get caught up in trying to work out all of the imagery, all of the uh, visionary stuff that's happening, the apocalyptic stuff. Just get the first three chapters and the last chapter, and you've got the story. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is watching over his people, and he will be victorious in the end. And I'm not by any sense saying it's not important to understand the book. But that's for time and place where we can expound and explain. And many people say the book of Revelation can't be understood. To me, it's one of the simplest books in the Bible. The book of Revelation is like a children's picture book. And it just shows you by pictures what's going to happen toward the end of the world. And I think we're getting really close. But what does he say? We understand something. We understand that the worlds that were framed by the word of God so that the things that were seen, the things that we look around us and see were not made by things that were visible. We call it creation ex nihilo. 
creation from nothing. God did not take something and create. God started with nothing, and he spoke, and it was, and it came into being. I will point out that the word worlds is ion, and it actually means ages. It's actually talking about the progression of human history. Before the world began, God had a plan that he put into place in his foreknowledge, in his wisdom, in his omniscience. He orchestrated a plan that would run from creation to the final destruction of this world, and everything is going to happen according to plan, no matter how much men may try to change that plan. We can understand that because we trust the word of God. So basically, we have four declarations of faith. You have those at the bottom of your page. Our blessed hope is a spiritual reality. Our trust that Christ will return, our trust that the kingdom of God will one day come to this world is a spiritual reality. Number two, that the invisible kingdom of God is real and it is our eternal home. What did Jesus say to the disciples in the upper room? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions or dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. We can trust that. We can have confidence in that. We have no fear of it. Third, we have the declaration that the only way to be commended by God is to live by faith. You know, the amazing thing to me is that God developed a plan, number one, that was so simple that the simplest person could understand it. A little child can believe in Jesus Christ. Many, many people have come to Christ at the age of three or four. They believe in Jesus. They hear the story and they trust it. In fact, Jesus said it's easier to trust it as a child than it is as an adult because we want to analyze and, you know, we want to try to figure it out. Little children just say, okay, I believe it. But then, of course, we have to grow up, we have to move on, and we have to live by faith. And living by faith is, this is hard to believe, as simple as trusting in Christ. Same simplicity. Same faith, same trust that God is in control, same trust that he's wiser than I am. He's not going to do things my way. I heard of a lady that left a church just recently, and she went up to the pastor, and she said, if God, if I was God, now, anytime someone says that to you, you know you're about to hear something frightening. If I was God, I would do it this way. <clears throat> and of course, what it tells us is, number one, thank God you're not God. And because you're not God, that's why he's not doing it your way. Because his wisdom is so far above our own. The last point there, both creation and history will be set right by God. <clears throat> They're going to be set right by God. The word framed, and I should have pointed this out in verse 3, the word framed is katartizo. It's there in your notes. But the word katartizo is used of setting a broken bone. It's actually a medical term. What it means is that the world is broken. And we all understand that. I don't think there's anyone alive who doesn't realize, <clears throat> even the rankest atheist will tell you the world is not the way it ought to be. 
something's wrong. Something's not right. <clears throat> and if you read the book, the title is Reality by Greg Kukul. Very simple read. The guy is brilliant, but he writes something that children can understand. Um, Gregory Kukul in the book Reality says the evil that we see around us in the world is actually evidence for the existence of God. People say, well, I can't believe in God because of the evil. Oh, well, you're rejecting really one of the greatest testimonies to his presence. Why is that? Because it's evil. How do you define evil? If there's no God, you can't define evil. It's just what happens. It's how you evolved. It's just the way things are. In fact, you would have to admit, if you believe in evolution, the conniver, the schemer, the elites that are corrupt, uh, the politicians, let's say, that do insider training and make millions of dollars. Do you know that our politicians have a 90 to 100% rate on their insider training? They are making millions and millions of dollars doing something that they have passed laws saying you and I can't do. And they're getting rich. But in the end, it's not going to be very good on their part. The world is broken. That's the point. God is going to fix it. God is going to set it right. And he's going to take his time because he is not in a hurry. He is a God from eternity to eternity. And he's going to take his time. And why does he take his time? Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, you might remember that God is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. All of those connivers, schemers, politicians, bigwigs, the big shakers and movers, you know what God's waiting for? He's waiting if by chance some of those people will humble themselves and come to him by faith. That's the love of God. That's how great it is. I want to leave you with one thought, and it's not in your notes, so you may want to jot this down. We're talking about faith. The whole chapter is about faith. But never forget, every time faith is mentioned, it points to two things. Every time you read the word faith, <coughs> you should think of these two things. Number one, the grace of God. God's grace. Because the Bible tells us, by grace you are saved through faith. And number two, it should remind us <clears throat> that faith has to have a working object. What's the object of our faith? The Lord Jesus Christ. So every time we read faith, bear in mind, God's grace is given to us because of what he did through his son on our behalf at the cross. All right? We'll leave it at that, and I'm going to ask Doug if he'll close us out in prayer. Lord, again, I thank you. This is one of the finest evenings of the week. We get to share your word. We have a great leader that wants, to, wants us to learn, and we have a great desire to. Bless us all, Lord. Help us take the words that we've learned tonight and other nights in the past that we can take to the world. There are wonderful, great people out there that are, are lost, and I know where they've been or where they are because I was. Help us bring the love and understanding that we have, especially the love 
that God has given them. That they'll have no greater in more blessings that we can be a blessing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deb.